Sure, country pubs and warm beer have their charm, but if you ask us, the real appeal of the United Kingdom comes from its straightforward approach to corporate taxation. I mean, there are no mixed messages. A punitive diverted profits tax says we want our tax dollars. A profit diversion compliance facility says how can we help you give us our tax dollars. A pending digital services tax says we need even more tax dollars. A growing number of transfer pricing specialists, the HMRC says, well, you probably get the picture. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about one of the most complicated tax landscapes in Europe, transfer pricing in the United Kingdom. If retaliatory taxes in the digital economy weren't enough to manage in the UK, and let's not forget your corporate reputation is dodging taxes, won't win you any mites, yeah. Now you also have Brexit and all of the unknowns that come with it. There's a lot to consider, and we'll get to all of it, but let's address your top concern right away. No Prince Harry and Meghan split from the Royals shouldn't affect your transfer pricing at all. Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song is in the house today, and on the phone from London, we have Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Director and UK Specialist Pamesh Sharma. Welcome to your Fiona Show debut, Pamesh. Hint, hint, there will be more. As always, you can earn CPE credits from listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're burying two CPE code words in the show. Send both words to, all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we'll reply with your CPE certificates. Now, before we get started, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. You never have to read between the lines with the EU. The message from Brussels is tax transparency clear. Tax abuse won't fly with us. But some regions just refuse to learn. Less than a month after Brexit, the EU 27 moved the Cayman Islands, a British territory, from the there might be hope for you yet tax haven gray list to the lost cause tax haven blacklist. The island jurisdiction failed to address the EU's concerns about companies who claim tax advantages from the Caymans without a sufficient economic presence on the islands. The blacklist is isn't just a slap on the wrist. Thanks to its new unfavorable status, the Caymans will likely have trouble accessing EU funding programs, and European companies doing business on the archipelago will have to endure additional compliance burdens. Agreed, the punishment sounds steep, but the blacklist has proven effective. In 2018, there were 15 countries listed, and today there are only eight. And for now, anyway, the Caymans are one of them. Since the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling for the IRS last June, the tax world and also the tech world has been wondering, will Intel-owned Altera appeal the infamous two-to-one decision and take the case to the Supreme Court? And the answer is, drumroll please, yes. On February 10th, Altera versus the Commissioner of Internal Revenue reached the highest court in the U.S. with hopes of overturning the Ninth Court's decision. The infamous case questions whether stock-based compensation should be included in cost-sharing arrangements between subsidiaries and the precedent could cost or save tech giants a lot of money in the future. In the unlikely event that this battle hasn't been the only thing on your mind since last June, a recap. In 1997, as part of an APA, Altera had a cost-sharing agreement with a subsidiary in the no-tax Cayman Islands. From 2004 to 2007, the U.S. company neglected to include stock-based compensation paid to employees for research and development as part of those shared costs. What's the problem? In 2003, the U.S. adopted new regs via the Administrative Procedure Act, which obliged taxpayers to include employee stock options in the cost pool 
under cost sharing agreements. According to the IRS, the case is simple. Stock-based compensation must be included in the agreements. For Altera, though, that would mean a reallocation of more than $100 million of taxable income from the Caymans affiliate to the U.S. The case went first to the U.S. tax court, which ruled unanimously in favor of Altera. Not so fast, said the IRS, which took the case to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and won. Now, the outcome, a nail-biter for Facebook, Google, and Amazon, is in the hands of the Supreme Court, and the decision is anybody's guess. It's official. Spain's tax control plan for 2020, which debuted at the end of January, outlines the government's priorities for tax enforcement. And what do you know? Transfer pricing tops the list. The Spanish tax authorities are stepping up their anti-avoidance game, paying close attention to insufficient documentation. And let's just say the allocation of functions, assets and risks won't go unnoticed either. So no cutting corners on those far analyses. Corporate restructuring, valuation of intergroup services, questionable deductions, royalties, consider yourselves warned. The tax authorities mean business. In fact, this year, they promised to implement a new risk assessment system that uses the automatic exchange of information, i.e. country-by-country reporting, APAs, mutual agreement procedures, and so on, to identify multinational companies with risky transfer pricing positions. Spain's timing is good. The EU directive known as DOC6 goes into effect this year and mandates even more disclosures about cross-border arrangements, which begs the question, is nothing sacred anymore? A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Pamesh Sharma, our London-based economist, is here to give us the scoop on the transfer pricing climate in the UK. Pamesh began his transfer pricing career with KPMG years ago before joining Cross Border Solutions One. He went on to continue his work on transfer pricing documentation, audits, and manage transfer pricing through special circumstances like mergers and acquisitions at Thomson Reuters and then a boutique firm in the Netherlands. Later, he worked in-house at Unisys, where he led the way in transfer pricing compliance. And now he's back home at Cross Border Solutions 2.0, as we like to call it around here. Thanks so much for being here, Pamesh. And with that, I'm going to let Mimi take it away. Pamesh, tell me, how did you get into transfer pricing? Sure. Um, well, I, I initially started working in a, a graduate recruitment program after I finished university with an MSc in economics. So I worked in IT consulting for a number of years. And unfortunately, due to the downturn in the economy, I was you know, pretty much made redundant very quickly and had to think, okay, a few years into my career, what do I do now? Right. And one thing I, I, I always wanted to do is really use the 
the economics that I'd learned. So, you know, both my first and second degree, both in economics. And then I saw an ad advert by KPMG for economists, which I thought, okay, wow, this is interesting. Transfer pricing did some research and was invited to an interview. I liked what I heard, was uh, offered a offered a role and you know the rest as they say is history interesting and then and then you stayed in transfer pricing so what about transfer pricing has has kept you interested yeah i mean what i think interests me the most is that i get to wear many different hats through to the different sort of jobs i've had in transfer pricing as well as you know here at, at cross border solutions so and different hats i mean you know on, on the one side i could be you know, preparing some economic analysis. On the other side, I could be writing up the same analysis. I could also be involved in meetings with people in various positions in, in industry. So from the CFO to the tax specialist to an IT person. Mm -hmm. so I, I like that variety. And it just seems to get more varied as, as the years go by. And, and, and in terms of pricing, I think, you know, things never really change. And the regulations are always changing and it keeps you on your toes. And you know what's refreshing is you can keep applying what you've learned with, with some nuances. And it's always good to keep learning new things as the environment changes. That's what really kept me interested, yeah. Yeah, no, well, I was going to say, I mean, to your point, there have been a lot of changes. Any specific changes that that you can sort of pinpoint throughout your career? What What's different today than it was when you started? I certainly think that transfer pricing in particular has has a seat at the table now it was a point where you know initially it was very difficult for companies to really take transfer pricing seriously from you know a, a documentation standpoint and a compliance standpoint it was pretty much you know ha having the attitude of well you know we can we can perhaps tackle this near the time or, or if, if we get an audit whereas now i think it's it, that's not the case obviously with that and also within within corporations, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a hot topic and it's been a hot topic for a number of years. And, and I think that changed, I think, in the 16 years from something that was just, you know, quite, quite sort of an afterthought to something which is really leading international tax for some departments, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of a priority. That, that changes. I've really seen that grow and become very important. I think that, that change to me really stands out. Fiona, I find that people have a general idea of the United Kingdom, but let's just spell it out for them right now. Which countries make up the United Kingdom? Well, that's an easy one, Matt. The UK is made up of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And as you know, it just left the European Union. Am I right, Pamush? Absolutely. So, yeah, so the United Kingdom is, is really a, a unity, if you like, of England, Scotland, Wales, and, and Northern Ireland. So it's a union. And that's what really makes it quite a significant presence on the global stage from an economic standpoint, mm -hmm. certainly. Obviously, you know, with Brexit, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later, <laughs> it's been an interesting history for us being within Europe economically. And, and now, as of the 31st of January, officially now outside of it. So it's, yeah, it's, we, are, we are still geographically Europe, obviously, culturally, but uh, economically things are, are going to change. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, in speaking with the UK specifically, they are a member of the OECD. Correct. And so, you know, when it comes to the transfer pricing regulatory environment for the UK, 
generally, are they adhering to the OECD guidelines? They are. Now, actually, only in the last number of years has, has HMRC, obviously the Tax Authority for the UK, only recently has there been an acknowledgement that the OECD guidelines is being adhered to. So that, that's really refreshing. Right, I think for UK taxpayers that, you know, along with BEPS and all those requirements, you know, there, there are some slight sort of tweaks and changes to it. But generally speaking, yes, there is now a you know, full adoption of, of the OECD rule. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good point to make because as a previous member of the OECD, to your point, Pamesh, you were saying historically they may not necessarily have recognized that they were following the OECD guidelines, but now it's a lot more explicit, right? That's right, yes. You know, we'll talk about this later, but certainly the the requirements were were very sort of um, prescriptive, were not very prescriptive, I should say. Mm -hmm. So there was certainly a recognition that a transaction between two connected parties, you know, should be analyzed if a provision exists for, you know, from a transfer pricing perspective. And what I mean by that, is that um, there is a concept called the arm's length provision w- written within the UK tax jurisdiction guidance, which says that you know if if, if the there is a pr- pr- provision that is made between uh, two connected parties, that provision should be the same as if it was a provision between two independent parties. Okay. Um, and it's um, yeah. So they're defining uh, and, it themselves and, and, a little bit separately. I mean, it's the same yeah. idea of the arm's length principle. Like, uh, the verbiage exactly. actually sounds sounds pretty in line with that. So let's just get started, at least with the basics. What are the documentation requirements in the UK? Okay, so so we've obviously talked about you know the OECD guidelines. So from from 2017, the OECD guidelines are effective for accounting periods starting on or after the 1st of April 2018. So as we know, that includes, uh, you know, a master file and a local file prepared in accordance with the guidance, guidelines. The HMRC has, you know, released wording relating to this guidance in, in the sense that it requires trust pricing documentation should be retained to support the arms length pricing and, and the documentation should be proportionate to the size and complexity of the transaction. And this is really crucial that the, 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 the form of those documentation should be as specified in Annexes 1 and 2 of Action 13 of the report. So that's a real clear statement of, you know, adhering to what we now know is obviously the, the master file and local file. And that also includes an adherence to the, the CBC rules. Although the HMRC doesn't require the master file or local file to be filed with the CBC return, obviously the mm-hmm. CBC return does need to be submitted. Right. So the documentation you know, has to be filed on a contemporaneous you know, basis and then obviously produced when requested by HMRC. Now, it is recommended the documentation is, is, is prepared from the date of, of you know, the, the, the submission, if, if, if required or if requested from the tax authorities. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it fully aligns to the requirements stated in Action 13. So, um, yeah, that's a a pretty major change. Yep. And if they were to ask you for your documentation, the HMRC, how much time do they give you to be able to respond? Yeah, I mean, typically it's it's about 30 to to 45 days. So that's still quite a short time to to, to provide your report. So certainly, you know, one must be mindful that 
documentation is, is, is in place, you know, hopefully prior to, to when you're being asked for. Right, right. And, and then the risk of an adjustment and or penalties if you don't have anything to support your position, right? And let me cut in right here about penalties. Fiona, how does the HMRC handle transfer pricing penalties? In the UK, penalties reflect the behaviors that led to the inaccuracies. Careless errors have penalties up to 30% and deliberate inaccuracies up to 70%. Obviously, this is a place where due diligence is important and valued. And let me stop right there for our first CPE code word. And that code word is inaccuracies, as in HMRC penalties, reflect the behaviors that lead to inaccuracies. And back to our conversation. And obviously, in the case of adjustments, obviously, and, and which isn't surprising if, you know, if the adjustment leads to a reduction in the amount of liability that goes to the UK, then obviously that you know, something that will be picked up. And, and then what about methodologies? We, we know that the HMRC is pretty particular, right? So what type of methodologies are they accepting? Well, I think the, the methodologies are pretty similar to what we'd expect in, in other jurisdictions. So, you know, as we know, there's an adherence to the OECD guidelines. So, you know, there's an understanding of the traditional transactional methods as well as the, the, the profit-based methods, the transactional net margin methods. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of, you know, transfer pricing case law in the UK, it, it, it's, you know, it's fairly limited. There are very few cases which have gone to court which have been, you know, publicly made available by, by HMRC. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think one of those cases was between DSG Retail Limited versus HMRC in 2009. And in, and in fact, in that particular case, it was a, the outcome of that was a, was a move, a departure, if you like, away from the cut methodology and a move really towards a profit split method in that particular example. Right. And I think what that case highlighted was, you know, comparables are really important. So, you know, if you're going to use the cut method, you know, make sure your, you know, intercompany agreements, when you're comparing those to third-party agreements, you know, you're comparing like to like. Otherwise, you know, HMRC, you know, can pick up on this. Right. Um, and if you can't make adjustments between those, third-party and internal transactions, then, you know, you need to be looking at other ways, other methodologies. So, you know, that that's also a, you know, a significant move that way we, we are aware of those those uh, differences now. Yep. And talking about comparables, when we think about benchmarking these various transactions, are there any particular benchmarking requirements uh, that the UK is looking for? No, not, not in particular. I mean, HMRC, you know, like a lot of European countries, do prefer local comparables when available. So traditionally, you know, there, there is a lot of, you know, reliable, publicly available data on UK corporations. I don't think it would be difficult to meet that. But, you know, obviously, if it's difficult to find, you know, UK-specific comparables, then, you know, we can go broad. I don't think HMRC is going to, you know, fully challenge that. But, yeah, I think, generally speaking, I would I would certainly recommend going, going, going for local, uh, you know, where possible. Right. And then, you know, what's fascinating about HMRC, I think in a lot of ways, I've heard that they've been pretty aggressive and and they've been in the news a lot when it comes to, you know, transfer pricing related issues and and sort of what they're planning to do with respect to arm's length pricing and things of that nature. Pretty vocal on an overall basis. And yet some sometimes in different organizations actually publish that they think the the risk of audit is is low in the UK. 
tell us a little bit about your thoughts. I mean, what? How do you feel about HMRC's position when it comes to intercompany pricing and and what the environment looks like from a risk perspective? It's certainly known that the likelihood, you know, of an audit is, is you know low, low to medium. That being said, it's worth noting that. In from I think from 2017, HMRC has hired you know 100 additional transfer pricing examiners, uh, and we know that TP adjustments have increased by about 50 percent, you know, over the, over the previous year to 2017. So we know that although the risk is low, you know, there's, there's still significant activity, and obviously, you know, if, if uh, tax authorities recruiting examiners. You know that that just means in the future we're, we're going to expect audits coming coming into interview, and you know there are certainly some changes now. You know, and we'll talk about this later about diverted profit tax and areas like that, which are something HMRC are using to to certainly get their, their stake, if you like, of, of corporate profits. So you know, I, I think you know we should look very closely in terms of time spans, in terms of audits, because I think you know we. We could potentially be seeing an uptick in audit activity very soon. Tell us a little bit more about the diverted profits tax. Sure. So this was introduced in, in the UK Finance Act in, in 2015, and it's really targeting multinationals that use artificial arrangements to divert profits overseas, you know, in order, in order to avoid UK tax. And where HMRC identifies this, there is a, you know, a, a higher tax rate of 25%, which is 6% higher than the UK's, you know, current corporate tax rate. And that became effective from, from April 2015. And the tax lets HMRC look at supply chains of affected multinational groups and, and recompute profits that it deems reasonable to assume would have been earned in the UK and subject to UK corporation tax had the supply chain not been designed to secure group tax efficiencies. So it's, you know, it's certainly a big departure from what's been looked at before, and it's certainly in line with uh, and almost preempting bets, I think. And, you know, it, it's often been termed, you know, the Google tax as well because of its uh, impact, you know, particularly on big U.S. tech companies. But in fact, it's, it's a lot broader. And, and it, it, it's very interesting because since it's been running, the yield from diverted profits tax has been quite significant. I think there's, there's been, there was an article published, published recently that stated that, you know, for the four years that it's been running, the uh, diverted profits tax drew in an extra $6.5 billion, you know, dollars, about $5 billion. Pounds. Now, although that, that's dipped recently, I think between 2018 and 19, it kind of dipped quite sharply, actually, by about 94% compared to the prior year. But, you know, in, 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 that's a significant take. And that's, I think... Uh, that's huge. $6.5 yeah. billion. Dollars. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It, you know, yeah, absolutely. And some, some, some you know, other interesting numbers, actually. Uh, I think 2017 and 18, I think 20, 219 million pounds was collected by HMRC just through DBT charging notices. And I think 169 million pounds was just estimated through behavioral change. And that usually means via voluntary, voluntary TP adjustments or restructuring to ensure profits from exploitation of IP, for example, carried out in the UK, is taxable in the UK. So there's some sign that it, it, it's serving its purpose. It's changing mm. behavior, uh, behavior right. in the corporate. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, and and perhaps the the fact that it's now sort of in a company, it doesn't really benefit a company to create these tax structure arrangements, right? I mean, that's essentially what it's doing. It's 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 de-incentivizing, if you will, a company to do excessive amounts of tax structuring to be able to move IP to non-taxable jurisdictions. But was this tax ultimately created as a result of of Google, right? Companies like Google. And it's, I I think a lot of people might even refer to it as a Google tax. Yeah, that's right. I I think the name can be misleading because, you know, the tax does have broader implications. But I think, you know, initially it was felt it was, you know, impacting on large U.S. tech companies. But actually, you know, what we find is not affecting not just digital companies, but you know, all I think it applies to all multinationals, mm-hmm. you know, especially meaning those headquartered in the UK or overseas uh, and across all industries. But you know, it is targeting large multinationals like Google, but also you know companies that are able to sell goods and services to customers in the UK while barely paying any corporate income tax relative to UK earnings. And I think you know, I think you know, Google is well known in, in the news for being caught out on that. But you know, I think I think it's 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 also looking at it. From a, from a broader perspective as well in terms of industries. Right, right. And so ultimately, who is at risk of a diverted profits tax? Yeah, so, you know, we, we talked about this. So we talked about companies with, with intangible property, you know, where some entities have little to no personnel or, or tasks related to profits. And, and that really talks to, you know, best actions 10, 8, and 10, 8 to 10, I think, because, you know, we're talking about structures lacking economic substance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's really attuned to BEPS, I think. But it also looks at other risk areas would be sort of high-value services, which are rewarded by a client, you know, on a cost-plus basis, uh, captive insurance arrangements, contract manufacturing R&D, and also businesses that rely on, you know, contractual arrangements that do not reflect their true economic risk, you know, the various functions. So, you know, I think it, it talks to what we were talking about earlier, that it's really difficult to hide and and, 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 and to really have an a, aggressive kind of transfer pricing uh, arrangement, and it really just doesn't, you know, it doesn't pay off in the end. Right. So I think it's aiming to change that behavior. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I think part of the problem, I, I w- at least from my perspective, is that it's such a unilateral measure, right? I mean, this is a UK-specific tax. If any, they have they have their own diverted profit tax, yeah. but like these are their unilateral measures that help protect their local tax base. But at the end of the day, it's still not solving the global issue of what that supply chain looks like and where tax should be paid when you look at it on a holistic basis, right? So. Right. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. If every company, or excuse me, if every country were to have incorporated this, this this could be uh, detrimental to multinationals on a global scale. <laughs> That's right. So, tell us a little bit about this concept of the Profits Diversion Compliance Center. What is that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, we, something we remember we talked earlier about, you know, the yield from, from the profit diversion tax, mm -hmm. right? It's pretty significant over four years. But, you know, HMRC still thinks that, you know, there are some practices out there which are potentially eroding the tax base in the UK just through, tax, you know, various designs of tax structures. So the Profit Diversion Compliance Center was launched actually on January the 10th, 2019. Just recently. And so businesses, just recently, mm -hmm. right, yeah. And really the facility allows a, a, a UK taxpayer to register with HMRC if they think they have TP policies that divert profits from the UK. So it sounds very, you know, voluntary. It, you know, if, if a company thinks that policies are not up to date or inaccurate, you know, at the time of filing, it's, it's really self-registering. So the UK taxpayer is, is given some time to get their TP compliance up to date. So, you know, these, these are companies which, you know, haven't been issued notices, but, you know, the HMRC are asking them or inviting them to say, well, you know, do you think, you know, you're, 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 you are diverting profit from the UK? And if so, in what way? And then uh, I think once the company decides to declare this, they have about six months to make that full disclosure to HMRC. And HMRC aims to respond within about three months. Wow. Um, and it's aimed at, yeah, it's uh, aimed at international groups that use or have used arrangements which, you know, divert profits from the UK to lower tax jurisdictions. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's certainly an interesting sort of, you know, gearing up, I think, of, of this. Right, um, right. So, like, um, multinationals are policing themselves and providing information that says, well, we think we might fall into this category. And they're basically giving uh, the UK or the HMRC a roadmap uh, in terms of what they should be looking at in some ways, right? But what are the benefits of doing that? Because... You know, at least based on that statement, it would sound to me as why would they want to provide that level of information? How do they benefit from it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a very good point, Mimi. And I think, you know, any, any penalties used on additional tax liabilities goes, will be calculated using what's known as an unpopular disclosure scale, meaning they would generally, you know, have lower tax liabilities by, by you know, using this approach. And I think also companies that do not use the compliance facility but later realize they, they are liable to a diverted profit tax or where a liability, you know, is discovered by HMRC will face higher penalties to put things right, you know, at that point. So there is an incentive really to take advantage of it. Fiona, what is the HMRC trying to achieve with the Profits Diversion Compliance Center? 
Well, it's important to note that the compliance center isn't just about transfer pricing. It can be used for any arrangement, such as hybrid structures or withholding tax avoidance. Anything that involves the diverted profits tax. The HMRC wanted to give UK companies and groups a chance to work together to review their transfer pricing policies and the way they are executed. The HMRC wants the process to help change taxpayer behavior. And that sounds like a good second CPE code word, Fiona. And let's make that code word behavior as in the HMRC wants the process to change taxpayer behavior. So I think, I think that's kind of the key, the key benefit and certainly, yeah. And basically, this whole Profit Diversion Compliance Center, it launched, you said, in January 2019. What prompted that launch? Well, I think it was, it was really a, sort of a, a feeling, I think, by HMRC that, you know, there was more potential profit, you know, that would have gone to UK companies being, being diverted. And I think there was still a feeling that there was less tax, tax revenue coming in from the uh, diverted profits tax facility and originally projected so that the compliance facility was being offered to focus minds on the issue. Hopefully with best endeavors, that, 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 that's going to pay off HMRC. Maybe, you know, and I think what we're seeing also, yeah, behavior is changing, I think, from a uh, UK tax compliance perspective. So, so I think, you know, this is something that will routinely come to, to, to large corporates in particular right. as, as sort of the best, the best practice, yeah. Interesting. And then, you know, we talked about this concept of helpful letter. I'll air quote that, right? Helpful letter. So they're not quite notices yet from the HMRC. And yet the HMRC apparently has been sending out certain letters to multinationals. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But I guess first and most importantly is that the, the you know, company that's received this should know that um, HMRC has, has clearly profiled its circumstances and, and that it has revealed risk of some kind of avoidance activity. So in other words, you know, you have a, a letter, but don't ignore it. Well, likely, you know, an investigation will ensue. You know, and, and if you haven't received a letter, you can still use the, the, the compliance facility. And I believe there are two stages in, the, in that process. So in stage one, the group will carry out an initial risk assessment of its current and past policies and activities. So for example, policies must comply with the OECD standards. They must also adapt the functional profile of the business if there are any changes in the business. And those policies must be implemented um, throughout and correctly. Uh, and the next next step is to register the risk and set out the group's plans for investigating it. So the HMRC will you know, want to agree to the plan. So it looks like HMRC is delegating its traditional investigation task to a taxpayer. You know, tasks it may you know, may not have the resources to carry out itself. Still, an early and open dialogue with HMRC can help speed up the resolution of tax investigation. Right. It's almost but, like they're putting the onus on the taxpayer a little bit more than themselves. You know, thereby getting a, a, the kind of response that they want, and yeah. without having to put too many additional resources on it. Right. That's right. I mean, you know, when you think about the UK holistically and their approach to this whole concept of tax avoidance and things of that nature, it's it's a pretty they're they're coming from this mindset of perhaps where they believe multinationals are in fact taking advantage and maybe 
aggressively taking advantage of tax arbitrage situations, right? I think we had read the Financial Times had reported that HMRC was was stepping up investigations into the tax affairs of, of U.S. multinationals, saying that they accounted for more than 17% of outstanding corporate tax revenue. So in your opinion, what do you think is the current attitude about HMRC on this concept of tax avoidance? It it seems like they're almost targeting U.S. companies in some ways too, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's a good point, Mimi. I mean, in, in back in, I don't know if you remember, in, in 2012, I think it was, there was a... Of our bucks, no, not Starbucks protests all over <laughs> London. That's a catchy <laughs> slang. It, it's catchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could almost use it in advert. But uh, you know, and 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 and, this, and when reported that, that that Starbucks was profiting in the UK and and paying little, you know, to no taxes. So I think that kind of you know brings that to light. And the UK has become vocal, you know, about going after you know, multinational companies and the quote-unquote fair share of tax due, I think, you know, to be paid. So, you know, in that way, the profit diversion tax is punitive. But hopefully the compliance facility will encourage, you know, corporations to come clean, but also show some, I think, I suppose it does show some distrust between, you know, corporations and HMRC, which, you know, we need to be mindful of as well. Right, right. You know, but to be be fair, I I don't think that U.S. tax authorities necessarily think that multinationals are are being, you know, completely uh, transparent either. So there's always a little bit of distrust between tax authority and multinationals. But perhaps these measures that are being put forth by the HMRC are, to your point, Pamesh, about changing taxpayer behavior and and trying to come together in this in a new age uh, where transparency becomes beneficial to both parties, right? I'm trying to look at it that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it just it just aids that kind of disclosure and transparency, which is really what it's all about. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that there is a you know a, a moral sense that you know if, if, if a company isn't paying its its share, then you know, it's not it's not helping to support a, a very British national health service. So I think there's definitely a, a moral sense, sometimes even of outrage, that very successful companies, you know, are not paying their share. But, you know, it, you can look at this in different ways because these corporations are providing jobs and, mm-hmm. and, and through jobs, mm-hmm. you know, we, we pay taxes, we pay taxes which ultimately do go to, uh, to, to fund these programs. But, right. You know, I think there's, there's you know something great. I think for the UK population, when a share of corporate tax is somehow being being avoided cleverly through you know sophisticated tax structures, you know, and using consultants to hide that as well. So I think yeah, there's certainly a moral element to it. Interesting. Yeah. So the the public is more invested in in ensuring that multinationals are not taking advantage of these artificial tax structures, especially because it ultimately trickles down and impacts their benefits. So I can see why there's perhaps uh, a stronger public sentiment about making sure that multinationals are paying their fair share of taxes. Absolutely. So this, this actually, your point about multinationals and creating jobs for, you know, even though multinationals may not have paid their fair share of taxable income to the HMRC. But your point about creating jobs is is interesting because now we can talk about Brexit and 
how Brexit, <laughs> how Brexit is actually impacting this whole situation. You know, impacting the global economy, whether or not it's it's going to create or create some some challenges for the the economy and you know the availability of of jobs right i mean all of this has an impact as it relates to brexit i guess the term brexiting is now a verb <laughs> where <laughs> in pop culture where the, the idea is if you are brexiting you say you're going to leave and then you're still at the party and then all of a sudden you're like oh you're still at the party you haven't left yet you're clearly brexiting and then 30 minutes later an hour later you're still there and finally you leave now i i get <laughs> so when it comes to brexit everyone's talking about this what are the transfer pricing issues at play here yeah sure i mean this this is so timely i mean you know this 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 we we in britain actually left the eu finally on january the 31st so this is very timely but yeah i mean there are there are there are certain you know uh brexit strategies which which could be looked at i mean we know that sort of uh, the outcome is uncertain you know the experts say it's likely that the uk will will leave the, the block with a, you know, with a separate you know, VAT, value-added tax system. It could create, you know, additional sort of administrative complexity for corporations. But, you know, from a, from a transfer pricing you know, perspective, you know, this, this kind of uh, divorce agreement, if you like, really does bring the attention of, of corporations to, to their transfer pricing structures. And we know that, you know, many companies have evaluate, evaluated their own sort of supply chain structures in Europe, uh, and and you know I think I think the financial institutions have done very well here because I think given the nature of you know financial services which 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 you know I think can adapt very quickly if you like mm-hmm. to changes in, in functions and risks I think the supply chains can be a bit slower so you know where you have supply chains you know one must one must consider transferring functions, risks, or assets from a UK group to a, a, an EU group entity, you know, should that be something that's being considered? And this, this kind of falls under business restructuring, which which really, there's no perfect definition, but, you know, if there is a, a cross-border reorganization of a commercial or financial relation between associated enterprises, then, it, you know, it could be considered as you know, a form of business restructuring. So, you know, on that basis, then, it's 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 similar to the transfer pricing you know issues we we talk about when we look at business restructuring you know it's no different so you know you know we would look at you know for example you know is there a transfer of profit potential between enterprises that were uh, you know require compensation payments to the restructured group at uk entity for the transfer of function risk to another non-uk entity then that's that's something that would need to be determined you know, from an arms and compensation perspective. And it's very likely that, you know, HMRC will closely audit the 2020 tax year. So, you know, it, it's important that we set up, you know, clear uh, transfer pricing policies, you know, post, post-Brexit. So post-Brexit tax disputes that, you know, could potentially result in, you know, double taxation, you know, might, might no longer qualify. So for resolution under the multilateral European Arbitration Convention or the new European Arbitration Directive if the UK group doesn't qualify with the Arbitration Convention and no longer qualifies as a resident of an EU member state. So there are all these, you know, 
different nuances coming into play. You know, and on the subject of documentation, so the master file and local files, you know, do require information about business restructuring occurring during the year, and they're very explicit about this. So, you know, and then that could be for, for, the, for the year or, or, you know, immediately uh, the, the prior years, and also to explain aspects of these transactions. So, information will be important to see if businesses, business restructuring will be considered at arm's length. You know, and there, there are, when we talk about business restructuring, there's always, you know, the the, the intercompany agreements which follow closely behind those changes, which must be looked at. So, you know, for example, we're looking at, you know, on the arm's length concept, we need to check for things like, you know, the termination clause of a current agreement to see, you know, what the term for termination is, you know, checking the, the change of circumstance clause that allows for renegotiation of terms. So these can't be automatically assumed you know, that the cost resulting from Brexit can be shared, you know, with or passed on to associated enterprises. So, you know, the key thing here is to check intercompany agreements for uh, unexpected costs. So, and then that can also include um, the currency in which transactions are priced. So that would be very, you know, noticeable in those situations. And also, you know, we may need revisions going forward due to revised functions and responsibilities. So the cost of transactions with um, EU mainland countries could go up, you know, for example, if the pound falls against the euro, which which has, has you know, happened, right. I think, for a long time, even mm-hmm. prior to yep. January the 31st. Yep. That's been pretty evident. So, you know, we can see that, you know, we need to really closely marry what's, what's happening, you know, in this change with what we're documenting, both from a multiple local file, but also our our housekeeping in terms of, you know, intercompany contracts. Right. Uh, another area is really to set guidelines for, for allocating costs. So, for example, if the UK entity has contractual responsibilities that it can't fill due to increased costs, such as warehousing costs, delays, produce losses, for example, and they need to be allocated within the group. So knowing beforehand who gets costs and who gets losses at arm's length would be helpful. Well, I am curious, Pamesh. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I I am curious, you know, based on your conversations with colleagues, customers, prospects, have you generally been seeing a a trend where they're moving the, you know, European-based headquarters outside of London instead, right, as a result of Brexit? From, yeah, from discussions I've had, I certainly know the financial sector has, has had a gradual move of, you know, certain, you know, function assets and risk out of the UK. Right. And I think, you know, the, the financial sector has been more sensitive, time sensitive to this, I think, because there was a, you know, certainly a fear uh, London would lose its, its sort of, you know, financial centre of Europe kind of status, if you like. Right. Uh, so there was a real fear of that. So without knowing, you know, exactly what was going to happen, and we still don't really know, we're now in an implementation phase, so we don't really know the exact details. But, you know, I have seen, you know, a, a kind of a belt and braces approach to, to what the financial sector is doing. And that's hedging their risks and saying, well, you know, what can we move from London? And, and, and you know, what can we do now to, to preempt, you know, any uh, issues in the future, in the near future, if, if our you know, trans- the transition phase doesn't go according to plan. And I think I'm also seeing it with, 
company with more traditional supply chains, uh, we're seeing sort of a you know a, a very cautious approach about you know now we've reached the January the 31st the official leave date, but you know what's going to happen in the next sort of 10 to 12 months. So there's certainly a more cautious approach, and, and I think from a documentation perspective and transparency in general, I think there is a greater onus on understanding you know, what's happening in real time, because obviously, you know, a lot of this, a lot of these changes will be documented in future years. So it's important to know now, why did we do things we did, you know, in anticipation of the documentation we're going to be writing up in the future. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, internal housekeeping, you know, keeping of meeting notes, which is really sure. good practice. Sure. You know, information which authorities don't really request, you know, there's no requirements for internal memos or meeting notes, but, you know, for, as, a, as a, you know, CFO or head of tax, it's good to, 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 to understand and document transitions as they happen. And, and, and you know, of all things, Brexit in the UK is, 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 has added a layer of complexity yes. to the European and, and UK businesses. And so future uncertainty. And I've certainly, yep. absolutely, I've certainly advised on, on making these notes. And it kind of adds the burden, I think, on compliance but it's really just making sure you know your your internal housekeeping is is, is you know is kept in shape because obviously staff will move and uh, if you don't have anyone who remembers the changes then at least you have a note of it you know whether it's in emails or memos so i think i think that's something i've heard about and i'm certainly mindful of and have advised clients on to do if they're, if they're you know in this in this period of, of transition Sure. And then, so what are what are some of the immediate future concerns for the UK as a result of Brexit, the official Brexit exit? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is so this is so to, you know on point, really, and, and very timely. So, so we understand the UK. You know, we have a a Brexit, you know, secretary, which is you know elected. Member of Parliament called Stephen Barclay, who told the BBC One show a host called Andrew Marr on January the 26th, very recently, that the tax policy decisions, including the controversial digital service tax, are still on the minds of the UK government. So, you know, there there are. We're, we're, I think you know we're going to see changes very you know, very imminent. I think, and then you know. From, from your side of the waters, right? The U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, Stephen Mnuchin warned that the U.S. could respond to digital service tax with tariffs on, on UK automobiles. So there's, there's almost this retaliatory environment, which you know is is, is certainly in the air now. And then for those who who are, you know want to know more, I mean, the UK digital service tax is is really a, a two percent levy, which is set to be applied on April the first. But it's you know. Still under under kind of negotiations, and this could could derail trade negotiations with the U.S. after you know you know after we leave the EU, which is which is really now. So um, you know it's 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 it, it, these are interesting times. Yeah. Yeah, it, very interesting times, and we're only going to see it create more complexity going forward. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Thank you for a great discussion, Mimi and Pamesh. A few quick takeaways from this episode, perhaps the most important, is that scrutiny is increasing in the UK and the HMRC has invested in new transfer pricing resources and even clamped down on documentation requirements, fully embracing the 2017 OECD guidelines. Next, if you're practicing overly strategic tax planning, you can get hit with the diverted profits tax, which is 6% more than the corporate income tax at 25%. And of course, there's Brexit during this year of transition, see if the new cross-border arrangement can qualify as a corporate restructure and revisit transfer pricing policies, intercompany agreements, and transactions to see if transfer pricing adjustments are needed to maintain arm's length. It's likely the HMRC will pay very close attention to transfer pricing practices of M&Es in 2020, so don't get caught off guard. And now we have time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know. We're putting a transfer pricing expert in the hot seat. Pamesh, that's you for a rapid fire round of nosy questions. Pamesh, are you ready? Yeah, fire ready. Excellent. That is question one. Question two, what mistakes do you see multinational companies make again and again? Um, I think I think from a, from a documentation perspective, I, 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 I still see inconsistencies and gaps between, say, for example, master file, and the local files of a multinational company. So, um, you know, and, and those, those inconsistencies can be just, just in the write-ups, you know, discussions about, you know, intangible assets don't really marry up between the master file and local file. So we see those inconsistencies, but also, you know, just, just the numbers, the, you know, the information that's filed on, on tax returns and the related party filing, you know, how does that match to, to what's being told in the master file and local file. So, you know, we see those gaps and inconsistencies time and again in, in preparation of, of our clients' transfer pricing files. But I think that, that, that's one, one key thing. And, and also another thing I hear is that, um, you know, I often still hear CFOs and head, heads of tax saying, you know, maybe for a, a particular benchmark, you know, it could be routine standard, head office services, 5% markup. We've never been challenged in the past 10 or 20 years. We don't need to update this benchmark regularly, or we don't need to review it for any gaps. You know, it just, it's just low risk. You know, we shouldn't do it. And, you know, I, to me, I think from what we've learned today, you know, with, 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 with BEPS and, and with Brexit and with constant change happening, that we can't let what happened in the past guide the future. It's we really need to be proactive here. So I think it's those things, you know, those areas around inconsistency and being proactive, I think I see those as mistakes, and I think that that's something uh, departments need to be really proactive on, I think. 
for sure. And strategies for remote employees. What what do you think? You know, so many of us now, I think, you know, not just within our company, but all of our all of the companies we work for, that there are many remote employees. I think I think one of the things is, is really use all the tech you have available to you. Because that tech helps you to to keep communicating, right? To to reach and be reachable. I think that really that really is that really helps. And the tech out there is, is just amazing. Have a dedicated study or office, whatever you call it. You know, if you're remote, you know, do you work in a managed office or do you work from home? Either way, you know, have have a place you call your office, right? Because it sets the mind for the day ahead. You know, and that helps you keep keep your routines and then, you know, hopefully you can then still feel like, uh, you know, you're adding value because you are. You might not be in the office or within eyesight of your boss, but, you know, you can still add value. So uh, I think, you know, I think those, those strategies really, well, I don't know if they're strategies, but they, they're certainly things I'd like to highlight if that helps. Finish this sentence. If I weren't a transfer pricing economist, I'd be a... Marine biologist. Very cool. <laughs> Swimming with the dolphins, I take it. Uh, <laughs> you can still, there's still a good chance you can swim with with dolphins and, and transfer pricing. You just have to go to the client summits. On to the next question. Name one thing you wish you knew when you had started your career. Obviously, I know now, but I think do yeah, it's probably self-explanatory. Do what interests you always. I think that should be your your mantra, your guide, because I think you know we. Whether you've been in education or, you know, you're looking for jobs to, to look for, you know, it has to be the interest that guides you. Otherwise, it's, it's difficult to do, right? Um, so do what right. interests you, then it's really not work. Follow your bliss, as they say. Uh, and people yeah. define success in different ways. What's your definition? I think I define success in, you know, if I've answered my question of are you happy with what you've done, whether it's a job, a task, a project, you know, have you done it to the best of your abilities? You know, you're looking at your own kind of value judgment. And if you think you have, then you're a success. That's the show for you today. Thanks for joining us and come back for more. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we'll bring you into the transfer pricing weeds with us every week. And don't forget about our sister spinoff, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, where we will clue you into the juiciest transfer pricing headlines. Yes, I really did just say juicy. This is Matthew DeMello, and they're crazy enough to let me host and engineer this podcast. Andrew O'Donnell provided audio editing for our interview segment. Executive producer Marilyn Mitchum-Strom writes our scripts. Thank you for for listening and we'll be back next week with more transfer pricing happenings until then and in the spirit of this episode cheers cheers